Hey folks, on today's episode of LTB, I'm in the hot seat on the pilot episode of Art and the Blockchain. With Token.fm during launch, last month I sat down with DJ Skrilla and intellectual property attorney Cynthia Gate for an in-depth conversation about the ownership platform. Enjoy the show. All right. This is Art on the Blockchain. I'm your host, DJ J. Skrilla. I have my co-host, Cynthia Gaten, here with me. Hello. And uh, basically, we're going to kind of introduce, I hope, uh, to artists and creatives, musicians, uh, even small businesses, etc. We're just trying to uh, get a conversation started about how art and music, etc., the creatives can monetize and make money um, on the blockchain and uh, Bitcoin kind of started this whole thing and you know uh you're a lawyer cynthia right right that's what, what kind of today. what kind of lawyer are you <laughs> uh actually my my background i work in the intellectual property i help startups and ever since i've been practicing i've been working with artists and uh software developers in this in this field one way or another so i have a history of working with uh new things <laughs> sweet and uh, I, I myself, I'm an artist. I'm a visual artist, graphic artist. I'm also a 20 years of a DJ and production experience. And uh, I've, I've been around the block a little bit with uh, just have my hands in a lot of different things. As an independent artist, I've had to own several, la- I've owned a couple labels. I've uh, managed artists. You know, I've had artists on a contract. I've had, um, I've just, I've had my feet pretty much in the art game since uh, I was a young buck. <laughs> um, but this uh, this whole you know I started trading Bitcoin and uh, trying to accumulate Bitcoin a couple years ago and uh, as I started learning about it I learned you know I started hearing microtransactions I heard this I heard that and I started people started talking more about getting music on the blockchain so that piqued my entrance my my uh, interest and actually as I was really delving deep into this subject uh, last summer I. Uh, I discovered Counterparty. That's what I started on, which is a, a blockchain that's uh, basically a 2.0 layer on the Bitcoin um, blockchain. So it's very secure. It uses all the, all, it uses everything from Bitcoin, but it keeps the, uh, I guess, the data separate on um, it, it, they own, their own Counterparty nodes, and the Counterparty nodes talk to the Bitcoin. From what I understand, I am not a technical person, but this is what I understand about XCP. And uh, there's a lot of cool things with this. Like, uh, I developed like a Gorilla Glue token, um, and the guy that we're gonna be talking to later, Adam, uh, on Tokenly, uh, he helped me um, put this together. Kind of, you know, put put together a token and play the music. If you own the the token in your wallet, it just recognizes it when you go on Token that you can play my music. You're basically an authority to play my music. If you don't have the token, then you wouldn't be able to play my music. So I think, you know. That's how, that's how I've gotten into it, and I've expanded on that. I've learned about uh, trading cards on the blockchain, of course, which uh, I've seen a lot of people making money. And, um, you know, uh, that's, in fact, I just showed you the article came out today about how somebody just said, like, Rare Pepe trading cards are, like, the most important thing on the, on yeah. the project right now going on because it's so ridiculous, but it pretty much sums up everything that's kind of going on with tokens a little bit, right? And that, Well, that's part of the reason why I think this is important because there's a lot of conceptual and high level thinking about these things 
But having being able to talk to somebody who's actually used it and made money um, is is important because there are a lot of people in this space and there's not a lot of people making money from it and certainly not using it in a practical way. So I really am interested in practical application for what it is that you can use blockchain, Bitcoin, and any cryptocurrency for. Because just thinking about it isn't going to be enough to get people beyond the, you know, who cares about the government and who cares about fiat money, who cares about these things. The whole uh, anarchist approach isn't necessarily going to get you very far if you're trying to get into this industry for, you know, diversify your income. Yeah. Um, I, I, it looks like from there's a lot of people if you know people probably aren't too familiar listening to this if you're just learning about Bitcoin and blockchain blockchain or just even hearing about this um, podcast but uh, it, it, there's a lot of companies actually working on this uh, dot blockchain um, and we're all the, we got tokenly um, Ujo um, there's like Tao there's there's a whole bunch of them that are using the blockchain to try to register, do rights management. Some are trying to just uh, stream music. Uh, I mean, there's a whole bunch of coins, and it seems like you're, you're, you're a lawyer. I mean, <laughs> what, what's your thoughts on people just uploading music on these blockchains? And Well, the, the, the foundational issues, t- in my mind, are who has the rights to these things. And I know that's counter intuitive to a lot of people who are in the space is that the the this should be a kind of an anti-copyright or anti-getting authority from the government with regard to who owns what and the rights to things but on the other hand if you don't have the rights to them if you can't prove that you have the rights to things then you will always uh, be in trouble if somebody ultimately uses your product and then finds out that there's been an infringement so those are the things that i'm concerned about is that the technology is out there, and while it's intended to be, uh, in some respects, fraud-proof, the blockchain itself is supposed to be a way to avoid f- fraud right. because everything is verified. All it's an immutable right. distributed ledger that you can't basically reverse, and it's transparent, so everybody should be able to see it, right? Right, and so the if you're going to avoid having third parties look at the accuracy of whatever it is you're putting on the blockchain – then it does lend itself to being misused. And I think there's that, that was the thing that attracted me to this was the immutability that you can hopefully have the transparency, but it doesn't make any difference at all if what people put up there in the first place is illegal. <laughs> yeah. It won't matter. You know, you can have a perfectly legitimate blockchain and then it'll be filled with, with bad, bad stuff. Yeah, there's a lot of. Uh, I mean, the for people that don't know, or people that do know, even. I mean, the it's a wild west in this uh, this whole cryptocurrency atmosphere. I think it was a lot more wild. It's getting less wild, but I don't know the ICOs and stuff. You know, there's just so much. Like when, when we're talking about this, we're kind of trying to grasp even where to start talking about this because <laughs> I know there's a lot of information. But we're trying to brainstorm and get things going here. We're trying to create a. Uh, a fair economy, I guess, and you know, get get artists to understand that they can be independent and not have to. They can they can learn about this, and I think with the right uh, resources and the right learning, like some, some things can happen. You know, what I mean, people can figure something out. Me and you have been talking about a certain application that we're trying to put together. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as soon as you start hearing about this, I feel like you know, artists or you know, management of artists, 
can kind of get a idea spark and then they can kind of go down these rabbit holes and they can share their ideas you know amongst their peers with us whoever um but it's basically we're trying to get a conversation started how to put art music creativeness on the blockchain and monetize it in a more fair way that is going on now right yeah and it's it's really important for you know artists to to get involved to inform the tech folks about what is going to be useful because the interface you're actually working with these tools is difficult it's not uh you know something that's easily grasped and that's one thing that's supposed to be going on is creating a more user-friendly environment Mm -hmm. for for people to get to get involved because if it's complicated and it and you feel like you have to have a you know a book with you every time you get on online and check it out then then it's not going to be useful nobody wants that hold on a second here all right, stand by here. We have Adam B. Levine from Tokenly on the uh, phone here. So um, we're going to talk to him for a while. How, tell me a little bit how you yourself started in Bitcoin and when that was for the uh, listeners. Sure. So I got started in Bitcoin about, I guess, uh, I first started reading about it and thought it was a really cool idea that definitely wasn't going to work in about 2011, 2012. Um, I was really into kind of gold markets and, you know, like I had kind of recognized a lot of the problems that it seemed like existed within uh, normal financial markets and normal asset markets. And it seemed like Bitcoin was this kind of really interesting way around a lot of the problems that we saw in the gold markets where essentially the tail wags the dog, right? Where you have these derivative positions that then are used to manipulate the overall spot price of whatever the asset is. Um, And that was something that you couldn't really do in Bitcoin because the reason why they can do it in gold is because nobody wants to actually hold on to gold. It's inconvenient to hold on to. It's expensive. It's uh, expensive to ship. Somebody can steal it from you, all these things. But with Bitcoin, if you were to settle a derivatives contract, there's no reason why you would want to accept dollars versus just accepting the underlying Bitcoin in the contract. And so this means that those contracts, basically that when you trade Bitcoin in this way, this was my thinking at the time, mm. um, it would be much more resistant to manipulation in the markets and you'd see a more realistic price because everybody who's actually trading Bitcoin actually has it to back it up because if they don't, they can't just invent some more out of nothing um, you know, or, or borrow it essentially off the market because those facilities didn't exist. Uh, we're recording this at a time when the first Bitcoin ETF um, is up for approval in the next week or so. And Right. That could change that uh, that basic thesis that I had. But at the time, back mm-hmm. in the very beginning, that was why I was initially interested in Bitcoin. And actually, um, my uh, my history is uh, is one of creating a lot of podcasts. So this is kind of my natural format to me. I like it because I have a lot of opinions and perspectives <laughs> on things. And this is a really efficient way to share them with a lot of people at once. Um so I had done gaming podcasts in the past, and then when I uh, came to Bitcoin, I noticed that there was literally no content that I actually wanted to consume in Bitcoin that wasn't like a super technical article written by a super technical person that you know <laughs> right. can't really talk with people who aren't that kind of technical guy. Yeah. And I, my skill set, like I'm not a developer, but um, but my brain works in the right way to kind of bridge the gap between developers and the stuff that they're trying to explain. And so that was the niche that I found. Um, in uh, 2013, in uh, April of 2013, um, I started uh, my second Bitcoin podcast, which was called The Daily Bitcoin Show. Yeah. Um, and after about a week, I burned out on that because it was too often and there was too much work and I was doing it all. Um, but it established us. And so we switched to a twice weekly format. Shortly after that, the show became the Let's Talk Bitcoin Show. I changed co-hosts and brought in 
um, Andreas and Stephanie, who had previously worked with me a little bit, mm -hmm. but who weren't actually the hosts on the show. And that was kind of the time. At that point, I consider myself full-time Bitcoin, and I've never really looked back. You, you, yeah, uh, you, you have over 200 uh, podcast recording with the uh, Let's Talk Bitcoin, right? Yeah, I think we just, uh, we're on a month-long hiatus right now, but I think the last one we released was 334. Yep. So yeah, we've done more, a lot of episodes. Can you break down for our listeners what Counterparty is and what kind of use cases you see like musicians and artists doing? Aside from just the basics, not, not necessarily going, I'm going to ask you some more questions about uh, Tokely and stuff. Okay. Um, yeah, so Counterparty, I mean, like, there's a technical and there's a non-technical explanation, and they're both right, but they are both incomplete in their own way. So let me just do the quick technical one. Mm -hmm. um, counterparty is a way to put things that aren't money on top of Bitcoin using the security of the Bitcoin network, using compatibility with existing Bitcoin addresses. And so that that's primarily what it does. And then the non-technical thing is if you want to create something that has all of the kind of desirable characteristics of Bitcoin. So like the fact that it can't be created by somebody else, the fact that it's you know fraud proof, um, the fact that you can do person to person transactions for a very small amount of money, relatively speaking, um, that can go anywhere in the world uh, without involving third parties. All of those things are characteristics that make having a token that represents something you do or something you sell or something you know that you own really really useful because it gives whatever the the thing is that you're that you're talking about all of the characteristics of bitcoin mm -hmm. so just as an example that's not about what we're going to talk about like an audiobook for instance like mm -hmm. if you buy an audiobook then you get a license to that audiobook because there is no token out there that represents that license because of that, you cannot sell that audiobook, you cannot give that audiobook to someone else, only you have that license. But if instead of having the license like attached to your name, if instead it was, if it was attached to the fact that you owned a particular license token that was created by the writer or created by the, you know, the audiobook author, um, then uh, <laughs> I just lost my train of thought. Uh, you could, you're saying uh, the audiobook is a, created as a token and... Right. You so can, it, it, it gives it all the characteristics. It gives it the tradeability, the sendability, the transferability, um, and then also the, the kind of neutral layer, right? So, uh, so if you have a token on Counterparty and I don't know you and we've never talked, I can still look up your token mm -hmm. and I can see the list of every address that has it. I can see all of the transactions because that information is transparently available on the blockchain, which makes it easy to audit stuff. Yep. And just in general, you can build really cool, very secure systems systems that give your users and give your fans more options in terms of what they can actually do with the stuff that you're selling to them without actually impacting you in a way that requires more of your attention or impacts you negatively for that matter. So I have, I have a question about the the transparency of what those things are that you are okay. licensing. For example, they're, they're all I get questions about, well, how do I know what I can do with the token? Mm -hmm. And there that, that to me is kind of a crucial element and i also think that in terms of the glossary of terms because as i'm going through and learning more about this a lot of ter their terms of art in this space and then their terms of art that are in the legal space and their terms of art like for instance etf if you're not into this financial space you may not know what that is so right. how do uh, but in any in any event what i'm asking is how would you find out what you have a license to do if you can't read the code 
So there are two ways right now. Um, we ran into this problem too. This is this is a problem. Essentially, what the token is is it's the key. Right. But you still need to have a lock on the other side that it actually grants you access to. Right. And so and so that can that's that's a lot of the power of it. But it also does create this problem where there's no centralized list of all the places where where you can actually see this. Um, so there are, there are two answers. Um, one is that we've created essentially an additional. It's not a system. It's. Um, We've created a way that you can uh, embed a basically arbitrary amount of data mm-hmm. into a token itself mm-hmm. and then have that information be displayed in the user's wallet when they have it. Okay. So we did this explicitly because we lacked expiration dates. And there are certain oh. types of use cases where an expiration date is very valuable. It's very important that you communicate to the user that this is an expiration date. You need to take it seriously. And so when we were putting together our multi-signature um, wallet, um, we essentially uh, made it so that whenever someone creates a token through there, in addition to the normal things you do with Counterparty, you can also do this this sort of thing and, and put in basically as much additional data as you need. So that's one side. But the problem with that still is that somebody has to update the metadata associated with the token. Right. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of the use cases we're talking about, there might be 10 or 20 different people who are all adding content or who are all contributing something to a, to one of these tokens. And so it becomes very difficult to do that. Mm-hmm. So our our more near term solution that's a more that's a more longer term decentralized full solution right um, but our, our near term solution is simply to integrate our services more tightly with the wallet and with the tokens themselves so that when a user has a token it asks our service what does what is this a key to right now what mm-hmm. can I currently get access to right now and then it keeps track of a list of all of the um, Keep track of a list of all of the, uh, the the changes essentially over time. So, so, so if, it, if I own yeah. a token and you own the token on the website, as it acts basically as an authority and a key to unlock myself getting in, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, in most circumstances, like I said, the other thing about tokens is it's kind of hard to talk in generalities because right. there are a bunch of different ways you can use them, and they kind of have overlapping but not the same utility. Right, which is a cool thing actually that you can have counterparty many different uh, applications be- being made on uh, counterparty, whether whether it be trading cards or uh, whatever the block freight, the music. The, there's a bunch of different things being built on counterparty. So if I make a token. I can essentially, you know, not for everything because some things is closed off, but I, I should be able to, I can make that token do a number of different things, right? So that's really what, what my company, Tokenly, is mm-hmm. focused on right now. Right. Is we don't actually, like until very recently, you couldn't even create a token through our wallet using Counterparty. We were just like, go to the other wallets out there, create yeah. a token there, and then we'll help you make it more useful. Because really, that was the hole that we saw. Counterparty does a great job of letting people create tokens, of letting people transfer them around. You know, the Bitcoin protocol does all the heavy lifting when it comes to that stuff. Mm-hmm. But it's that whole, why would somebody actually want to buy the token from you? Why would somebody want to own a token that they have to pay Bitcoin? in order to send right and the yeah so that that's what we've been doing and it and there are a lot a lot of potential use cases but they all require development and that has been a real barrier is that most of the people out there who have the ability to make projects a success are not the people who have the skills and ability to actually create these things when they've never been created before so we're kind of fitting in between like we we're a service provider company i like to think um we work with a lot of different people who have different ways like you said card games music things like that um where they can use tokens but they don't have the expertise in order to do it in a way that really feels like a good experience to the users and so that that's where we come in 
Yeah, talk about talk about Tokenly a little bit, like from I guess a basic standpoint, what it is, what, how artists could. Uh, What's your elevator pitch on this? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Our elevator pitch is pretty specific to the use case because of that problem I mentioned. Ah. Um, <laughs> okay. Well, just um, you, you have Skrilla here. Is is he's he's your audience? Yeah. I want to. I want to. What's your set, pitch? I want to put a. Uh, I want to make a token like I did with my Gorilla Glue token. I made a Gorilla Glue token. For, it represented my mixtape, and uh, you know, can you break that down for an artist? Of why why that's valuable, or what? How to do that? Yes. Yeah. So basically, uh, it used to be that when you bought music, you were buying a copy of the music. Mm -hmm. And with that, so like you buy it on a CD, you buy it on tape or whatever. And because you actually own it, you can do what you want with it. This didn't actually change when we moved to the digital space. It's just that you couldn't do that. So there was a company called, um, uh, gosh, what is it? Uh, Digi... Digi something, uh, Digi recordings. I can't remember. Anyways, there's a company called Digi something mm-hmm. that um, went out of business about two years ago after making an initial splash. And their entire business model was basically um, you downloaded an application to your computer. It searched through your iTunes and all of your other paid music service libraries, and it found all of your licenses that you legally had. And then it allowed you to list those licenses for resale. And they had this system with uh, you know a team from I think it was Stanford uh, who figured out a way to make it so you could prove not have the uh, the song in two places at once, which they argued made it so you were not violating the licensing conditions because you were literally transferring the license and no longer had access to it at the time. Uh, you know, and, and that's been kind of perceived as the problem is that like if I have an MP3 and I send you a copy of the MP3, well, I still have the MP3, so I can't really sell you that copy because I didn't give anything up. Right. So that's that's been the argument. Mm-hmm. They went out of business uh, because uh, that argument failed in court, and it failed in court because of the reason. Uh, the way that computers work. So basically what they said is that even if this license doesn't exist in two places at the same time, the thing that you don't have the right to do is to create a copy of it. And by the nature of how a computer works, when you move a file, even on your same hard drive, from one section of the hard drive to another section, you are creating a copy, moving it to that section, of the, to that new space, and it is being deleted in where it was. So they, they successfully argued in court that it was impossible to sell this, even though the court acknowledged that everyone has the right to sell this. So they basically said that the way that you could sell it legally under this was if you took your hard drive out of your machine and you sold the original hard drive onto which it had been downloaded, <laughs> then you could do it. <laughs> so, so we looked at that problem and we were like, well, but the problem here is that the thing that's being sold is the music. If the what's being sold and what's being transferred is the license, then there's no problem there because there's no copying that ever occurs. And so... We looked at that and kind of used that as our entry point into this idea that if you had people come in and you had them create their own licensing tokens, right? So if artists created or um, labels and things like that created their own tokens that represented these things, then they could offer them through our service, but they could also offer them through many, many other services out there and essentially have a one kind of size license that iTunes can recognize and everybody else around can recognize, essentially turning the system that it is now, which is this incredibly fragmented market where there are a hundred different platforms out there 
where people sell things on, and if you own it on one, you don't own it anywhere else necessarily. Instead, it makes it so that you can still do that. You can still just buy the song on iTunes, but you could also go to the artist's site. You could buy the album from them, and then you could just listen to it in iTunes. And iTunes doesn't pay for bandwidth, but their uh, application gets more useful because now people can access music in it that they didn't necessarily have to buy from iTunes. So iTunes is a bad example here. And in fact, what you'll find as we talk about this is that any company that is big enough to have an effective monopoly or partial monopoly on a market doesn't like this, right? Companies that are already big or like uh, in gaming, for example, um, like Blizzard, has very little reason to use tokens because they already have a really robust, vibrant ecosystem with a lot of games in it and their own platform service. So they can already do all of the things that you get with tokens. But if you were talking about a hundred different, you know, independent games out there all run by medium-sized studios that don't have, you know, 10 games each and a huge platform that they've built up Battle.net over time, then the type of thing we're talking about here, that intercompatibility is really useful in the same way it is to Blizzard, except they don't have to own everything. And they also don't have to trust anybody in order not to screw them over because the way this is entirely neutral. So let me make... Yeah, go ahead. Uh, th- so I want to make sure about something. So you're you want to deal with you know when you're when you're when you buy a license to play somebody's song, that license doesn't necessarily give you permission to sell the license. So you're you want to deal with folks who own their own music and can like and have full you know authority to do whatever they want with it. Is that is that your market? So that's our initial market. Okay. Um, we think that there's the least amount of friction there and there's the least yeah. amount of resistance there. But ultimately, we think that this uh, is going to make sense to labels. And also, I mean, like getting beyond uh, getting beyond music, this actually makes a ton of sense for movie companies too, mm-hmm. um, like uh, movie production companies. Because if you look at a situation like you have with, um, with Netflix um, or any of these other streaming services out there, there's this entire swath of the catalog that isn't available and won't be available because there's no way to do um, to do these uh, to essentially have the the studio have control, right? If they do like a pay-per-view deal, they do a different pay-per-view deal with every single platform that comes along because they're all custom. Mm. But if instead the studios just issue a token that represents that license that can then be used at any of these places, then all the streaming services can effectively just add it in, sell the token as well, uh, earning a commission, or just buy the token and use it as capacity for their own licensing purposes. So Netflix essentially would need to buy as many copies of a premium title licenses as they wanted to have simultaneous capacity at, at the time mm-hmm. uh, in order to uh, offer as rentals or offer as you know anything else um, to users. And so, again, like I said, that's never going to happen now because the way that the studios work and the way that these deals work, um, that, that's not going to happen. But if you have the studios in control of the licensing process and able to issue and able to know for sure that any license that exists out there is a legitimate license because it came from them cryptographically, then the math changes on that. And I think you can see a whole kind of different world emerge. Well, the other aspect of this that could, could happen that I see, because this is part of the dilemma with visual art, and from a from a physical perspective is the original creator once it's resold doesn't get any of that reseller money right because a, a piece of visual art if the value goes up 200 percent or several times <laughs> then they don't and it gets sold the person who created it doesn't get a percentage of that is your model incorporate the idea that let's say somebody bought a license and they within the license they give them permission to sell the license but that the original owner of the 
music or art or whatever that is gets a percentage of the resale? On the resale, because the entire thing is decentralized, it is not possible for us to uh, for us to enforce that. Um, where we do do that, and where we think is going to be, frankly, more valuable as time goes on, um, is in the rental market. Um, essentially, our paradigm has it says that if you buy a license, then there's nothing that says that you can't give that to somebody else temporarily. And so in that circumstance, because it is, uh, it's a temporary function, it uses one of our tools, and we do have the ability to allow the artist to specify between 20 and 50 percent, um, actually, sorry, it's between 10 and 40 percent um, of the revenue generated from those uh, rental transactions. Okay, so... Um, and we feel like that's a good value. So, so you're going to be lending out the tokens. You lend out the tokens then. It's... A little more complicated than that and a little proprietary, so I can't get into it at this sure. point in okay. terms of how it works. Gotcha. But um, but uh, but the bottom line is that in places where the where the commerce activity goes through tokenly services, it is every we, we are and intend to continue to push towards having the artists or original content creators and issuers share in future revenue that's generated from the tokens that they issue. We think that that's an important incentive layer. Oh. We can't do it for sales. Right. Yeah. If you're selling a license, then you kind of there's certain things you just can't you, you can't do. But the but so that sounds it sounds pretty interesting. So you have a lot of potential revenues in many different ways. Are, are you working with the folks who are using the token? Are they dealing with a, a standard template license or are they actually able to modify some of the terms? They're able to very extensively modify the terms. That's actually something we still have on our to-do list is to get like two stock licenses that we feel really comfortable with and that we feel like give kind of a broad swath right. of permissions. Because nice. uh, right now we just have we just have a standardized license we've been using for testing. Yeah. Um, but yeah. But uh, but yeah, that that is the idea. Um, yeah. And if you have any suggestions on that, any you know. Uh, uh, templates or things like that that you feel like are kind of good indicative models, then I'd be happy to talk to you about that because that's not an area of expertise for us. No, no, there's there's lots of really cool things. And that's part of the reason why I'm particularly interested in this is like is downstream revenue for the people who are creating things, whether you're the right. you know uh, musician or visual artist as well as the developers. I mean, developers who are putting in money and time into this themselves should get you know. There's opportunity for them in this space, and I'm looking at the full picture of the creative partners in these in this process. So, so, so yeah. the, what what's the uh, advantage, like in a in a more layman's term, like pretty what's simple? The, what's the advantage of me using this blockchain as opposed to uploading it on SoundCloud or getting a distro through you know CD Baby or one of these places? Yeah, we don't actually see this as being a replacement. That's actually one of the big reasons why we picked music as the focus is because with like games, for example, mm -hmm. or really any other thing you can think of, um, people pick one platform. Mm -hmm. And so the platform that they're on has to be the best one in their eyes and it has to have the most advantage. That's not the case with music. With right. music, like DistroKid, that's what I use. Mm -hmm. And they publish to 150 different places. So we have meetings with DistroKid coming up in the next week and a couple of other um, similar service providers. And we see that as, as essentially uh, another onboarding uh, avenue for us. Um, is through that sort of just like one-stop uh, shop, and then of course gotcha. the beyond the tokens. The beyond the tokens, um, our streaming service also um, is essentially a paid streaming service, a pay-as-you-go streaming service. Um, I saw that there's another project that uh, has recently adopted this model. I don't think they're as far along as we are, 
but um, but I think that this is kind of the future. Is that once we really got into the streaming use case, we discovered that the most expensive part is just the bandwidth, and beyond that. Like there's so much money that's going towards nothing. Like that's going towards just basic functioning of the companies that are enabling this because it's their entire business model, and even then they're not making any money off of it. So what we've done is we put together a plan that costs about six bucks a month, and there's also a free plan available too、um, that lets you listen to I think like 16 hours or 17 hours、um, worth of、uh, worth of music. Um, in in this paid capacity, and then when you own a token, it doesn't charge you on a per stream basis. You just get to listen as much as you want because you have an overarching license.、Um, yeah. So, but but in general, the reason to use this service is because it cuts out the middlemen and turns them from being platforms like and partners into service providers.、Um, our system is really flexible. Our system is intended、um, to make it so that people can do whatever they want. Well, before we.、Uh, So about an hour ago, I was、uh, sitting outside and I recorded a song that I've been working on,、um, and just threw together a really quick edit, and then I uploaded it to the service, and I made it available to people who have my early access token,、um, uh, which has about 15 songs on it right now, and I made it available to people who have LTB Coin, which is the token we created for the LTB network, just as kind of a test, and、uh, I attached it to Gorilla Glue. Nice. So anybody who has the Gorilla Glue token will be able to listen to that for free as well.、Oh, And so、yeah. that's that's kind of, that's just kind of the sort of thing that, that I'm talking about here is that the、that's、ability cool, to collaborate. That's cool. Actually, you can cross. Yeah, that cross promotion、yeah. is a thing right there. Like, yeah, that's cool. You, yeah. Huh. And it's also cool. Like like I know me and you had talked a while ago about、uh, the I think like bringing back because、um, everything is streaming now. Like when if you. You can make the art, and、uh, you can make like a trading card or, or like an album cover, and make the album cover more advanced and、uh, have it do more things. Like, like you could create a game out of it, and so it's a music trading card game, and like you could even have an artist website. I imagine where if you want to get into my advanced、uh, secret stash, then you would have to have my token, and I could set that up as a developer to to get into the you know rabbit hole down my.、Uh, Website to get all my music or something, right? Yeah, hopefully you you wouldn't need to be a developer to do that. That's really what we're trying to avoid at this point because that's hard. Being a developer is actively hard. It's very expensive, so, and especially when you're doing these new things, you're just wrong a lot of the time, and so you wind up spending a lot of time doing the same thing. Um, so are yeah, you gonna have so, like a like a similar type of thing, like a word plus WordPress plugin or something for me to hook that up to my、right. website? Awesome. Yeah, that's right. We actually already have a, a test version that I can give you if you email me after this. Definitely.、Um, and it's it's for that. It's for token controlled access. And that's kind of the other thing about this is that because you know this is a neutral platform because we're acting as a service provider rather than like a partner. It really is kind of all about trying to make it so that you can make this stuff accessible in as many places as possible. So if you want to have it on your website, then you can do that. Whereas if somebody was just buying your stuff from iTunes, there's no way that you could be able to say, "Oh, hey, that guy bought my album from iTunes, and so let me give him access to this members-only area of my website."、Indeed. Really, that's what it's about. It's about building out this community on an individual artist by artist basis, and then kind of having those aggregate communities come together and be able to really form important structures that can help kind of everybody along. We're, we're seeing the idea of like genre tokens, right?、Mm-hmm. Where in order to promote、um, to like promote your hip hop,、uh, you're like, "Hey, I'll put." Throw this single onto the hip hop token, right? right? And then people who have that token、uh, get access to it. People can just kind of、uh, tune in. And of course, 
So anyways, I, I go off the rails on all this stuff. There's so much detail that <laughs> yeah. we can get into that it's very overwhelming, and I'll just revert back to your questions. Well, my, I, I just had a, a question about how to deal with, with bloat. <laughs> to the extent that, you know, as all these ideas, because that I think that's the really, you know, kind of the powerful thing about this is that there are so many ideas out there, but then how do you kind of you know, set up some parameters so that you're just dealing with answering specific problems. And this is more of a business and, you know, if there's anything proprietary about what you're doing, that you know, no need to say. Sure. But I think it's it's one of the something that I'm seeing is that because there's so many potential opportunities out there, how do you set up your parameters about what it is yeah. that you want to do? Yeah, that's hard. Um, so I started Tokenly three years ago. Mm -hmm. um, we started as a uh, as a volunteer, fully open source project, um, and we did a lot of things. And even right now, we have a lot of products. We literally have more than ten products in various states of development. Um, and so your question specifically is, how do you focus in music? And I can tell you, it hasn't been easy. <laughs> right. We spent a long time really winnowing down the feet set and a lot of the stuff that i was very excited about that really was kind of the initial impetus for this idea um uh was you know cut and pushed to later versions just because in order to get out a product that people can actually use you know and that's the other thing is we're not the biggest challenge in doing anything with tokens is simply that nobody has bitcoin and yeah. if you don't have bitcoin then you can't make any transactions with tokens so you have this and it's also uh, basically impossible to sell uh bitcoin for credit cards uh, and so you have this really just like a big piece of friction up front. And so that was one of the things that we really spent a lot of time focusing on fixing is figuring out how can we interface with people and how can we enable users who don't have any Bitcoin, don't have a desire to get a wallet and still make this so that we're not holding other people's money or having responsibility that we're uncomfortable with. Is that, so that something you guys have figured out? Yeah. Are you guys figuring that part out? It is. It is something we figured out. Please. We figured that out. We figured that out. That was something I, I figured out about four months ago, and we've been building it for the last couple of months, and it's actually in now. Right now, you can go and buy a token um, from a, one of the few places uh, the, where we're actually selling them, uh, and effectively, you get a token instantly delivered to you um, in this temporary fashion, which then gives you access immediately, because that was another real problem we had was that, you know, just like this dollar problem is an issue, if somebody buys a, an album that represents uh, represented by a token, and they, you know, like pay for it and then they get it sent to them. But because of the Bitcoin network, it takes an hour and a half to get there yeah. or even 10 minutes. Then that's a really negative experience relative to what the current experience is. So we just went, I mean, like that, that's been the process for the last just four months is going through the list of things like that, where it's like, this is really inconvenient. How do we make this so somebody would actually use this because it no longer has these disqualifying factors. So I'm, I'm really excited. And I think we're almost there to get to the point where we can stop focusing on eliminating reasons why someone wouldn't want to use the product and we can really focus on enhancing the reasons why they do want to use the product nice. so i mean not to get into the weeds on it but um the original name for this was actually tokenly radio and the idea was to essentially reinvent kind of the radio licensing scheme system and allow for anyone who wanted to become a streaming broadcaster to effectively use this tool to manage their licenses and then also sell their own token, which represents access to their live stream. And then anybody who has their live stream token can just listen to the radio 
effectively um, by whoever the, the person is that operates it um, and without needing to go out and buy album tokens themselves without needing to uh, you know to, to do pay-per-view stuff themselves because they can just pick the radio stations that they like and the people who are creating these radio stations um, can actually make money doing it because they sell a token that represents um, access to essentially their content library and there's just there's all this cool stuff that you can do once you get to that level once you get to the place where Everybody knows that these are bearer licenses. Everybody understands the basic kind of uh, function under which they operate. Now we can figure out what, what happens one step out. What happens two steps out? What can we do with these things? So I'm excited about that. Indeed. I was excited about the uh, survey you sent a while back to me where it was like mad questions. You guys had a lot of ideas in there. <laughs> and uh, I hope to see some of that stuff implemented. It, it was some good stuff. I'm not going to get into it too much. I don't know how much of it is, <laughs> You're gonna is actually going to be happening. Yeah. But yeah, it, it was a lot of good stuff in there, Adam. Um, we intend to do all of it, but it's just, yeah, I mean, there's just a lot right. of stuff to do and it just takes a long time. Um, well, speaking of tokens and you elaborate, you got into a little bit about let's talk Bitcoin token. Can, um, can you explain Like, I, I thought, you know, that was a cool idea too, even, you know, even though it's a few years old now, but, uh, you had a, a website where people provide content and interact and receive this token every week, I believe, um, based on how you know what they've been doing on the program and uh then the token was uh made available on some exchanges and they could cash it out for bitcoin whenever they want or they could hold on to it and uh speculate on it and uh i thought that's a pretty simple uh idea for uh you know creators and stuff like that for it to i mean the way you created that website i mean it was a, it was a good idea like i i don't see why more people aren't doing that do you have any uh any thoughts on that yeah, I do. Um, it's expensive. <laughs> that's that's really what it comes down to. Um, I used to get into arguments with some other people in the Bitcoin space, uh, arguing essentially that we should do everything on the blockchain because that's what Bitcoin is for and we can, so why wouldn't we? It's not very expensive, so what's the problem? And over the last year and a half, as we've not scaled the Bitcoin blockchain, mm -hmm. I have become increasingly convinced that I made the wrong decision at that point. Um, it's is very nice to use the Bitcoin blockchain for everything because it means that the company that is doing the stuff doesn't actually have anything that can be stolen from you, right? Right. And so we've had to come up with kind of interesting ways to make it so that we don't take on that responsibility of having to take care of other people's stuff, but without having that problem necessarily. So, so the long and the short of it is just that um, let's talk Bitcoin. Uh, the the site uh, in I guess uh, the winter of 2013 and uh, spring of 2014 um, went from being a single podcast to being a network. And actually, we were on terrestrial radio uh, for three months too. Oh, cool. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, um, but uh, right. So 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 that that was what happened uh, then. And in spring of that year. Uh, we launched the rewards program as a way to compensate people for um, for the content that they were providing and also just because we could. Because at this time, tokens were very new. The idea that you could create your own token that didn't have its own blockchain that you had to run with it was completely new. Nobody had really done anything with that at that point. And I had been considering doing this as an altcoin before, but it was so much simpler to do it as a token because I didn't have to worry about mining and all these other things. And once we figured we didn't have to worry about mining then we were like oh well if we don't have to worry about mining then we can do we can figure out another way to distribute this token and that was kind of where proof of participation came and and to make it and clear proof of the, participation was that metric talk about yeah 
Yeah, to make it clear to the audience, when you create a token, you create a set number of issuance too. So you know off break, uh, you know, how, you know, I guess you could speculate easier on it. You know, that's not good. You can't print thousands more of these. They're you know, limited. They're limited edition type. Yeah. It's uh, actually in our case, that wasn't true. Oh, actually, really? in our case, that, that wasn't true because, again, it was the same situation is we knew that we wanted to distribute the token over the course of a couple of years. We picked five years and it was very heavily weighted, about 95 percent in the first three years. Right. Um, uh, so we knew that we wanted to do it for a couple of years we also knew that we didn't want to hold on to all of that ltb coin already created because somebody could steal it from us we could screw something up and so there were all of these reasons not to hold it so what we did and what you can do with tokens is you create it once and then whenever you want to create it again you just do another issuance and so what we did was we created a five-year schedule that said okay every week we're going to create this many tokens on this descending schedule you know 30 percent are being allocated to this purpose 20 percent are being allocated to this purpose and every week, as soon as we created them, we distributed them to all the people who had earned them over the course of the last week. Okay. So um, at, at the – now, we're, we're very close to the point where I am actually going to lock the token because there will be no more issued. Um, we're waiting on one more final detail to finish getting signed, and then I can do that. Um, but we're not quite there yet. But, yeah, that, that's basically what it is, is that um, it just lets you have the benefit – of a cryptographic vehicle, which I know is not useful, is not a useful term for people out there, but it just means that you get something that's as good as Bitcoin, except it's for whatever you want. You can create however many you want, and it's basically free, unlike Bitcoin, which you would have to actually buy. Um, and you don't have to worry about people mining your blockchain or people attacking your blockchain or any of those sorts of things, because in order to attack your blockchain, they would actually have to attack Bitcoin, <laughs> which is the most secure blockchain out there. Indeed. Uh, um, let me see what else I got here. Um, oh yeah, so you kind of touched on a little bit about uh, the scaling issue. What uh, generally? What is your um, thoughts on the immediate future of Bitcoin, and what are your thoughts on the block size debate that's going on currently? So I have a bit of an outlier opinion on all this. All right. um, I have for a very long time thought that uh, it was going to be impossible for Bitcoin to remain one cohesive blockchain because simply there are too many people who uh, benefit like a lot from different ways that things could be done. And they are almost entirely uh, contrary to each other. Um, that has been further reinforced um, by the fact that the, the dialogue between the two sides has completely broken down at this point. Mm-hmm. And both sides are basically just really, really angry at the other side and nobody wants to compromise. And they're, essentially what they need in order to make anything happen is a 95% consensus, which just isn't going to happen in this type of an environment. Mm-hmm. So that's what I think is going to so so what I think is going to happen in the medium term is that we will have two bitcoins we will have a bitcoin that follows the bitcoin is a settlement layer and digital gold approach um, where transactions might cost a thousand dollars each you know after five or ten years um, but each transaction that's on it will be used for millions and millions of dollars so relatively speaking it's a great fee um, and then on the other side you'll see a bitcoin that does scale on the blockchain and both of these will have Both of these will have essentially off-chain layers that allow you to do microtransactions and things like that. But there's still a reason why you would want to be able to do a transaction on a popular Bitcoin chain for $5 in 10 years, right? And with the way that Bitcoin Core is intending to scale, that's never going to happen. They basically just want everything to move off of the blockchain. So, um, yeah, so so that's my unpopular opinion. (laughs) Uh, 
you know, people think that that's a bad thing because they're really concerned about the value of Bitcoin. And the thought has been that if there are two Bitcoins, this will break the illusion that Bitcoin is something special and then all of the money will flee and go to other altcoins. And I think that's completely ridiculous. I think that Bitcoin has already won a lot of the stuff that's really important here. And really, it's just about trying to make this useful to the most number of people, because that's how you wind up losing users to other blockchains. Like we've been very tempted to do this stuff on other blockchains simply because it would be so cheap and so fast that instead of having to do album coins, which is what we're doing now, we could do song coins. We could do, you know, like less than that. You know, I mean, just like it, it doesn't matter if the cost of the token is very, very low. And when we started, the cost of the token was like 10 cents, you know, to create a token and to send one was like less than a penny. And now you're talking about a buck 50 to create a token and sometimes as much as 50 cents or a dollar to send it. So the capacity issues are meaningful issues that, uh, you know, are going to hurt things for a while but ultimately i think will solve themselves regardless of who actually wins this argument you think uh bu is gonna fork the chain here soon and that's what's gonna happen like it's gonna be the core chain and the bu chain i'm not talking about any specifics here i really have not been following it closely enough to be able to tell you that this has just been my feeling is that both of these sides think that the other one is going to submit. Right. The other side is going to just say, okay, well, you guys won the argument. We'll do the thing you want. And I just, I mean, like, I've met people in Bitcoin. That's never going to happen. Right. But you, now you use, but you use the Bitcoin layer. The reason that you said, like, you could do a cheaper one with altcoins and all that stuff, but you use Bitcoin. The primary reason is because of the security. Because of the security, because of the name recognition, mm-hmm. because it's where we started building, and because so far all of the other layers that have come out have also their own problems. Yeah. So it becomes less about upgrading to a better solution and more about just upgrading to a different set of problems. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, uh, tokenly, the technical term is a platform agnostic layer two protocol. Um, which basically means that okay. uh, we sit above a blockchain. So Bitcoin's down there, Ethereum's down there, any other blockchain you can imagine. Uh, Tokenly is on top of that. We communicate with that. We understand tokens from these various protocols. And then within our applications, they can actually work together and speak to each other. Uh-huh. So, um, so so that's what we are. But there's been no reason to be on anything other than counterparty because we're still at the point where we need to prove the basic utility of these use cases mm. before we can really say, all right, well, now let's bring in all of these other chains out there. So that might change at some point in the next six months. But um, that, that's the reason is that there's no free lunch. You know, people who talk about other protocols like they're substantially better than Bitcoin just don't understand them properly because they might be better in some ways, but they're much worse in many other ways. And so that, those trade-offs are meaningful. Indeed. So um, I guess wrapping this up a little bit, um, are, are there any other digital currencies or tokens or alts out there like that you're interested in the Seika arts or are you pretty much you guys are just focused on, like you said, just XCP and stuff right now? Are you are you looking at Ethereum and Waves or any of this other uh, st- platforms? Uh, if Waves succeeds, then I'll be interested in Waves. Ethereum's done a really good job of marketing themselves. Yeah. Um, and so there are basically for any technical reason um i'm not interested in ethereum at this point because i don't really think the value of smart contracts is as cracked up as most people uh seem to think it is like if you you ask people what a real use case for that is if they say something besides gambling it's probably wrong (laughs) (laughs) Um, so like the thing just uh, deviating on that for a second my pet peeve about smart contracts is that what they do is they allow you to disintermediate the legal right 
And so intermediating the legal platform is something that's valuable if what you're doing is illegal. Right. right. If what you're doing is not supported by the legal platform. But if it is, then there's nothing good that can happen from that except potentially lower expense. But you can do that with arbitration clauses, too. So like the reasons to do it, basically, Ethereum is just one use case after another where people haven't really thought beyond the, hey, you could yeah. do this and it would be cool state. Thought and then Ethereum has done their marketing so well that it makes it exactly like somebody uh, somebody who put in like thirty thousand dollars into the Ethereum crowd sale um, can basically fund several million dollars worth of projects at this point. So that multiplier has that there. Because all these Ethereum early investors that hell got rich and now they're just dumping that more expensive money into the ICOs on Ethereum and just kind of uh, making them like Golem and all these other ones are just getting huge crowdfunds because people have all this excess money right right it's platform as a service is what it is is people essentially <laughs> we've done crowdfunding the hard way a bunch of times now um and the easy way is to just do that is to pick something really generic that probably is going to fail is totally unproven but that has a couple <laughs> of buzzwords associated with it and where you can then tie those things together and say hey give us a bunch of money and then people give you money because they don't want to miss out and that's you know no problem so from that perspective <laughs> we have recently been talking about um doing our ethereum integration a little bit sooner rather than later just so we can you know Get say accurately <laughs> that currently we support ethereum and that we're also an ethereum project because even saying we're platform agnostic that isn't quite enough. Anyways, um, what was your actual question? I got off on a track on that. <laughs> no. Oh, other other point. Uh, yeah, just uh, whatever yeah. your interests are. I guess any any type of uh, technology that's popping in the uh, digital currencies, tokens, offset. You know, you have your eye on, or you think that yeah. would be cool. Yeah. So, um, so a couple of things. Uh, I don't generally recommend coins, and I'm not recommending this one. Um, the reason why I'm mentioning it is because we actually are using another blockchain in the Token.fm project. Um, we use Counterparty and Bitcoin for the token layer, right? So the ownership and the licenses, but for the actual music itself and for the metadata and monetization information about that music, um, we put it up to the Alexandria uh, project, which uses the Florin coin blockchain. And Florin coin is a very old altcoin, actually. It's about three or four years old at this point. Um, and the thing that it does differently is it has a five, it's a, the, it has a message field that's about 10 times as big as Bitcoins. So you can fit 10 times as much information into the blockchain in a given transaction as you can with Bitcoin. And so this allows the Alexandria project to put all of the ownership, licensing information, uh, monetization information, payment information, payment routing information, all of the stuff that you would want in order to have a full, complete copy of your license um, available on a blockchain that anybody could look at. And so now when anybody goes and says, what, you know, what does this give access to? It doesn't just give access within the token.fm ecosystem. It also gives access in the Alexandria ecosystem system in any service that's using Alexandria. So um, Florincoin is probably one of the most undervalued tokens that I see out there right now, simply because nobody knows that we're working on this stuff and nobody knows that um, and nobody knows that Florincoin is really being used for anything or Alexandria is really getting anything because to this point, it's been a quiet, uh, you know, sort of underground project. But like you look around now and just today I saw two new um, media chain project type things come out, which are basically what Alexandria is. It's, it's uh, using a blockchain to embed uh, music licensing information and metadata into it, and then using a distributed file storage system to make it robust against somebody, you know, against someone taking down the files or something like that. Um, so, uh, but, but yeah, just bottom line, uh, that one's real interesting. It's been very low, the same price for about two and a half years, and so I, I think that'll change.
Yeah, I was. I've I've been looking at that, those charts. Actually, this isn't a uh, trading show, but kind of agree with you on that. Um, <laughs> the uh, have you checked out Dot Blockchain dot, or the is it Dot is it Dot Blockchain Music or something? Yeah. The one that uh, Benji's doing uh, the rights Benji's. management and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. What, what's your thoughts on yeah. all that stuff? So it's a standard. That's what that is. Um, dot Blockchain is a standard, and it's a new type of format um i really like what benji's doing we talked with him about it um with regards to our project maybe six or eight months ago mm-hmm. um and uh and i think it's a really good idea um i think it's going to be hard mm-hmm. uh but it looks like he's got a good consortium behind him and looks like they have good partners so i think if anybody's going to pull it off based on the current you know uh, uh you know uh, current season out there, whatever you want to call it. Um, I think that, that, uh, he and blockchain, uh, or dot blockchain are about as well positioned as anybody else I've seen. Um, this is a really hard space though. So, so just because they're well positioned doesn't mean they succeed. I think that all of this stuff is, uh, still very, very early in the scheme of things. But uh, theoretically, they, uh, what they're doing, I think is more like the, putting the rights management and all that stuff. They're not, they're not putting content on theirs, right? Or do you know? So, I don't actually believe they're using a blockchain. Uh, I believe what they're doing is they're um, is they're embedding the metadata into the um, into the file itself, so that when somebody uploads the file to YouTube or whatever, um, YouTube is able to essentially uh, yeah. take that metadata out of the format and say, okay, this gets paid. You know, this is owned by blah blah blah. Here's the payment information. The person who uploaded it, according to this license, has the ability to collect, you know, one fifth or one twentieth, whatever you want, of the revenue from it. Yeah, something like that. It's a list of permissions. Um, I think that what what you're talking about, though, putting it on the blockchain, yeah, I mean, that's that's the end game of all of this stuff, mm-hmm. uh, because then it makes it so that you can, instead of having to have the information travel with the file itself, all you have to do is be able to recognize the file, just one little piece of identifying information. Mm-hmm. And then you look that up on the blockchain, and now you can find whatever the current one is, because that's the other problem is like, if I create a song with you know this information in the file, and then a year later, I issue a new, uh, an updated version of it then anybody who has my old version isn't going to get updated because they actually have the copy that they have. But if you just have it referencing the blockchain, then all you have to do is just update the information on the blockchain and it updates for everybody. Indeed. Yeah, I was thinking about it. Like if you uploaded a song and put like the wrong cover album art on the blockchain, then you're kind of screwed, right? Like as it is now because... The- no, the way it works, yeah. We actually had to do that the other day. Um, Tatiana Moreau's uploaded all of our music and forgot to put in the access tokens. And so we wound up having to um, do that. And and basically with all of these things, you can't delete from it. Yeah. But what you can do is you can put a type of transaction into it that says cancel this and ignore it from now on. Mm. So that you can upload a new version or you can just take it off entirely. And if someone goes digging through the entire blockchain, then they could probably f- figure it out and find it eventually. Um, but it would be a very... Uh, difficult uh, thing to do. Yeah, and, I, I uh, think, think I saw something like an amendment as an element of in the in the chart because that that's something that is an important thing. You want to be able in, and certainly un- amending something people understand. You like to yes. to take care of you know because nothing's going to be error free. 
It's just, it's just yeah, not you, impossible. You can do it either way. Yeah. The, but the other thing that it allows you to do is it allows you to track the provenance of that. Right. So if the song has been re-uploaded three times, you can see it was uploaded here, it was canceled here, it was uploaded here, it was canceled here. So again, like it's, it's just kind of like you know, it, it's creating that ledger. It's creating the the list of who has what and uh, and who has what rights associated with it. And so yeah, you can either delete and say this is completely invalid and you know no longer show this in front ends, or you can say update this with this new information. Hey, when artists you're using tokenly um, and stuff, and you know this is important, I guess, with bigger companies like they 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 keep the analytics and all this stuff. YouTube and you know Google, everybody keeps their analytics and sells it to advertisers. Is there a chance that tokenly can provide um, access that artists can uh, create, you know, hold on to their analytics and and sell it sell it back to people or get a group of people and sell it as a you know a consortium or anything? Yeah, absolutely. So that's one thing that we're really excited about is providing more information and a more direct, along with that more direct connection to the fans. Um, so on the there are a couple of different ways that this is going to happen. Um, one way is with statistics like you're talking about, which is just that for any of your music that's streamed, regardless uh, through the service, regardless of if it's paid streaming or if it's um, or if it's a token-based streaming, uh, you'll get statistics that show you reports on that. And we're trying to decide what the right balance of privacy um, for fans versus access for artists is, but it'll wind up being somewhere in there. And yeah, their bottom line is that you'll be able to, we're, we're positioning this whole thing like a service provider. So they're essentially your people who you're bringing, you have the ability to uh, have access to their information. And uh, there was another thing I was going to say, but I've forgotten. Cool, cool. There's a lot to say. <laughs> yeah. This whole space. Um, well, well, you can see why I get distracted easily. I'm like Mr. Stream of Consciousness when it comes to this stuff. Yeah. I, when I start trying to tell my friends, I go off on so many tangents as well. I, I don't even get, I don't think I hit the meat of the question that they asked me. There's so many thoughts you have to have in your head simultaneously. Yeah. This is part of the. <laughs> There's a lot of context. Yeah, yeah. That's really, that's been the most difficult part about this. For the first two years, it was so hard to talk about this because we didn't have any really use cases like we do now with the music stuff and a couple other things. Um, and so you just would have to be like, all right, well, when this stuff exists, you know, then you could use it for all of these things, but none of it actually exists yet. So it's gotten much, much easier since we've gotten, uh, you know, closer with this alpha. Cool. You got any other. Uh questions about token area? no it sounds pretty pretty interesting i'm looking forward to to seeing how this all comes together now, one question one last thing i did want to say to you is uh, you you are a music or a musician obviously um can you uh tell i know you released a a, a little color ep a, a roughly a year ago i mean are, is this something that you're still doing or is tokenly taken over or i mean this is a this is an artist channel so you know i know you're an artist <laughs> Tell, tell us a little bit about the music. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah, so I do music as a hobby. I do music because I want to better understand the use case that we're going down. So about a year ago, we started working on this. About a year ago, I bought a uh, Ableton uh, push um, and uh, and just absolutely fell in love with it. Fell in love with And I, like, th- th- let me deviate on that for a second. So there's this uh, there's this idea that I've had for a long time that we are moving away from being operators of the stuff that we enjoy and we are moving towards being users of the stuff that we enjoy. And what that effectively means is that if you're an operator, like if you're driving a car, then you're operating the car. You had to learn how to drive the car. You had to, you know, go through a licensing process so that you could educate yourself about it and do all those things because there's a there, you're, you're operating it, right? You're operating a machine. But if you're sitting in a self-driving car 
and you push a button that says, you know, go here, then you're, you're just a user of that service, right? You sit there passively and the car figures it out. You just kind of indicate your will to the thing and then it fills in all of the hard stuff and it makes it much easier for you. So now you don't need to learn how to drive a car. Now you can just, you know, sit there. Or the other uh, analogy here would be like moving from a uh, stick shift to a manual, to a, an automatic, right? Like you really have to know how to use a stick shift, but an automatic, you just kind of put it into the gear and then the car does the hard stuff for you when it comes to the individual shifting. So uh, the reason why I'm telling you that is because do uh, car and the shifting right uh, with the music with the music it's it's the same thing it's like it's really hard to play music like I've been working for the last seven months uh, on and off on yeah. this song that I uh, very very simple song I wrote for the mountain dulcimer and just a vocal part for myself and it has literally taken me you know like six months of on and off again coming back to it picking it up again learning the thing so I can play it really well and stuff like that whereas with the Ableton like I pump out a track that is so much more complicated and which you know like does exactly what I want in exactly the ways I want in like a day yeah. So the it's it's the same thing, right? It's like you you just tell it what what key you're in, and then you can't hit any notes that are wrong notes. You tell yeah. it what what uh, what uh, tempo you want, and you can't do anything out of beat. And so it just becomes about again like putting together your will. So for professional musicians. Like, I think that it's really empowering, but I think it's why we're moving towards this kind of what I call post-indie space. Because it used to be that in order to make, you know, music, you need to have, like, a bunch of people and you need to have, a, you know, a band or some a garage talent. or something like that. <laughs> exactly, some talent. And now, you know, like, the talent's out there. The talent is modularized, so it's really just about kind of curating. So I don't really consider what I do being a musician. I do consider it making music, but, that's, that's like, deep. it's, I got it's you different. On that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a lot of it's a, lot, a lot of art and music has been apped out almost where it's you know yeah the basics that you had to learn years ago just like anything everything things get automated and it's a new level where you start and that's kind of where we're at where it's almost like you're putting together collages like in terms of electronic right. music you're just taking things and putting them together at this point and uh yeah like the computer just is so <laughs> well then <laughs> but so then easy. even with EDM they'll they'll end up putting some imperfect yeah. Voice, yeah. on top of it because that makes it human. Yeah, you, you know the perfection imperfections is, are the art. Right. A lot of times, that's yeah. what dis- the that's how you you see an artist is by the imperfections rather than the perfections. Usually, I, I completely agree. So yeah, so I you know, I mean, so one one more thing. Um, uh, so there's also this really cool idea about um, dynamic multi-track remixing. Um, uh, so, so right now, when you listen to a song, um, you're downloading either a low-quality file or a high-quality file, but it's one file. And that one file contains all of the tracks, all of the instruments, all of the vocals, smushed down into one mix that then is the song. Uh, so it used to be, right, like you're putting something on a CD, and you kind of need to do that, both because you have uh, size constraints and because uh, you just want to give people kind of the easiest experience available. But in the digital era that we live in now, that's super not the case. And so there are not necessarily yet, but what's coming and what I'm very, very excited about personally is the ability to take songs that are represented by a bundle of licenses, each of which or by a license which represents a bundle of licenses, right? Uh, each of which is a track. And so if you listen to a song and it's contained in this fashion, then instead of your player downloading one track, it downloads all of the tracks and when you play it back you have the ability to toggle off to remix it kind of live um, and it will all be perfectly in sync 
because yeah. it actually is the song. It's just kind of a custom mix you can dynamically create. And then to share those becomes trivial because all you're doing is essentially just volume information for each of the individual tracks. So it's very, very small. So all you need to do is just have that one kind of master file. And then you can have, you know, a 10 kilobyte or less, um, you know, a little tiny remix file that modifies it and essentially programs it to play back however the remix is supposed to play back. And this doesn't just go to one song either. This definitely is a concept that because, again, like we know what the what the beat per minute and what the scales are yeah. of all of these different songs, it's actually becoming very easy to interlayer them in a way where you can have these remixes. Again, like it used to be you needed skill to do that. Yeah. But now, not necessarily some of now it's kind of about so you know I, I know I'm talking to you about this and this is kind of your business but it means that it's a lot easier for you too and you get to kind of focus your skill on the hardest parts of the thing rather than just focusing on everything on becomes a mashup at the end know. of the this day <laughs> <laughs> I mean I, I, I noticed that, a few years like yeah I noticed a few years ago like Illmind and some of these other producers started releasing their tracks and their albums with all the uh, tracked out available and that started kind of the old drum discs and everybody got that got really popular in the production industry yeah. and um yeah that, like you said that's just building on that uh, everybody's giving up their tracks because you have to stand out it's almost like you have to give people more so they can do more just more um what do you call it? variables and stuff just need to be involved and it's nuts it's nuts but there's also i mean like it's scary, yeah. Well, there's also opportunity there for Definitely. you know if you, if that is your thing is to do the the you know four track if that's your thing and you're able to you understand that there's opportunity to to have that skill used in a different way. Look at you how know? the YouTubers take the news people and just make songs out of them now. They get like millions of hits. Yeah, I love that. It's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's pretty crazy. I almost think that music music. It's gonna. Ha it's just such an overload. We're gonna get into this. Me and Cynthia are talking about something, but it, it, it's so overloaded right now that it, I don't know. It's gonna have to. Um, something's gonna have to happen to uh, to make it yeah, you stand want out more. Something's gonna have to to break the next barrier. I feel because yeah. everybody can do this right now. Um, I don't know. I think eventually we'll see something happen. It's the easiest thing, you know, right right now because it is something it that. There are so many ways of creating it, but then what is the value add if you're yeah. in that industry? And somebody, if everybody can make right. the same thing, like where where do you stand out at? Right, and that's yeah, that's what we're trying to do. That's what we're trying yeah. to at least with that some of that knowledge, they can find ways to fit into the to the market. Yeah. You know. Well, we've talked a little over, and it's a good talk, man. I appreciate it. Uh, is there anything else you want to add, Adam? No, I think that's it. Thanks a lot for your time. Like I said, it's uh, this is you know this is all uh, it's less of an experiment than the other projects I've worked on. Mm -hmm. But we're still, I mean, just like all of the stuff that I work on, this is all untested ground. Yeah. So, like, we have plans, but those plans are really flexible because this whole thing is a learning experience for us. So right now we're super focused on music, but I see a huge application for this and basically everything but music. Like mm -hmm. essentially what the what we've created with Token FM is like the next step of a company like Patreon. Yeah, we uh, where they've already got the money side, they've already got the connections going on, they're already dealing with artists, they're already dealing with creators of all kinds, but there's no ownership and people who support those projects are basically just doing so because they want some access themselves or they want some kudos because there's nothing actually in it for them besides that. 
So this kind of completes the loop on that stuff. And there are a lot of Patreon also is a very early company. They're a forerunner company that I think is going to be kind of a model that a lot of companies wind up following. So, you know, I, I think that what we're doing is early, but so far we've seen, uh, we feel like it's very promising um, and are interested. Yeah, if anybody wants to um, get in touch with regards to this, uh, early at uh, token.fm. Um, or you can just hit the token.fm uh, website and uh, sign up there. And uh, yeah, should be fun. <laughs> cool. Sweet, man. Appreciate talking to you, Adam. And uh, we'll be in touch. Everybody, uh, check out token.fm. <laughs> All right. Thanks a lot. Thanks, guys. Later, Adam. All right. So, Cynthia, um, I guess every time we do this podcast, we're going to have Cynthia do a news segment. So, welcome. <laughs> Cynthia's news. Let me get yeah. the music. <laughs> uh, just to give you an idea, a flavor of what's going on out there. Uh, first thing that I thought was interesting, this happened, uh, came out yesterday. Spotify acquiring Sonolytic a UK startup that uses audio identification technology to recognize songs and tracks copyright protected materials. This is a pretty important uh, feature that Spotify has, a, has acquired. It helps certainly with them identifying related music. If you're looking for s- stuff that's similar to the music that you already like, this is, uh, this is a pretty big deal. Second thing I wanted to uh, talk about, or at least introduced to you is that uh, Jay-Z has created, along with some other related businesses, a new venture capital fund under the Rock Nation umbrella, Arrive, to assist with branding, managing artists, and representing athletes according to their press release. So all this, all we're going to have links to all this information so that you can you know check it out for yourself. Uh, the team intends to work with a select group of early stage startups, so it's not open to anyone. So it seems like they have a very specific niche they're they're trying to work with Do we know the niche? just early stage startups and it looks like you know artists and athletes so that seems to be the focus right now but i have a feeling they have some people that they're wor- willing to work with or looking to work with right now uh third thing in the visual artist space there's uh, simon denny who is a new zealand born and berlin based artist the solo show in los angeles hammer uh the university of ucla hammer museum Featuring the potential applications of blockchain. So this is an interesting uh, way of realizing or understanding or appreciating blockchain in a physical form. So in this exhibit, he investigates three possible futures for the industry, for the blockchain industry, and created a sculpture for each of these possible futures. The exhibit uh, closes on, it's open right now, it closes on April 23rd of this year. Again, I'll have a link for that. Did you look at any? I did. It was it was actually very very interesting. Um, so he's got Ethereum. I was about to say, what is Ethereum? It well, you know, it's all beauty's in the eye of the beholder. Right. Let's, let's, leave it at, let's leave it at that. Uh, <laughs> then number four, economist and filmmaker Emmanuel Stegers or Stegars has released a documentary film entitled "The Blockchain and Us" this year, so 2017. This film is the result of 20 interviews with people ranging from authors to futurists from five different countries. So I think that'd be kind of interesting to check out another way of looking at the blockchain in a different format. Uh, 
If anybody's going to South by Southwest on March 14th, there's going to be a blockchain and decentralization meetup, uh, 3, 3.30 to 4.30 at South by Southwest, and I'll post the, uh, the location or the event information for you. And those are my top five. And those are my top five. I know. So much fun those years. <laughs> God. But it's, isn't it? It seems kind of different now to have a lot of the businesses. It's major over there now. Yeah. When we were, we, we kind of caught, I mean, at least I kind of caught the last tail end of the indie part. I started seeing it get major my last year there, I think 2011 or 12. But uh, the first, yeah, we, were, we used to throw shows down there. So we used to get to jump on the clubs down there and throw, wow. bring, throw our shows down there. It'd be like the off-Broadway uh, South by Southwest, and it would, it would be crazy. I mean, we had uh, a lot of people: Beanie Siegel, Raekwon, a whole whole rack of people come through. But um, all right. So um, I'm gonna give uh, my interesting blockchain thing of the week. Um, so as uh, I, I I pretty I kind of touched on it a little bit, um, but I've been into the designing trading cards for this uh, rare Pepe trading. Uh, card thing and um I've, I've made about 25 of them i think so far there's 750 in the series and it caps at a thousand and it's actually a cool way to monetize your art if you're an artist there's still 250 slots available you can go to uh, rarepepedirectory.com and uh sign up and basically you you, uh, you don't sign up you just uh, submit your artwork there's instructions and you put it on the blockchain and you create a create however many number of tokens you want you can make uh Anywhere from like a hundred to a hundred thousand, and it goes into a uh, database, and then people literally buy your digital art—not the original, but the digital art. Which some of this stuff is going to be used in trading in video games. Um, like you could attach music with the token FM. Uh, you can attach like an authority site, like we talked about with Adam. Um, a lot of cool stuff. Anyway. The, the rare Pepe thing is in, interesting because, I mean, people are it, it is people are making money off this that aren't just like developers or consultants of blockchain. It's actually the artists, and there's people that are interested in collecting these things. I mean, all over the world, there's a Telegram group with about, I think, s- close to 800 people now. It's the largest, it's the most active community on Telegram, period, not just cryptocurrencies, just period. It's the most active Telegram group. By about 25%, I think. They had a stat come out last week. So, I mean, it's just ridiculous. I've seen this thing go from... 790 members. Yeah, I've seen these people go from... Not people, but this this technology that this guy Mike made. uh, Not any technology they made. He just... He made an asset and then created a... Him and uh, Joe and a couple other people created this uh, database and wallet and a simple GUI wallet that... uh, you know, it's a Bitcoin wallet, but it looks like a cool website interface. There's also a book of orbs. There's there's a bunch of apps involved. And basically, these people collect the cards. Um, even without, that's the first utility. They're collecting cards, it's like baseball cards and other stuff. But they're limited and they're rare. And it just, it just because of the, there's also a rare Pepe fascination, of course, in America with the alt-right uh, small segment. But in all of the world, it's not really like how America <laughs> views it. It's it's like a meme that people like it's it's freaking crazy i don't know I'll, i've seen a lot of, i've gone down a crazy rabbit hole with this one but um i've seen the, the market go from like thirty thousand dollars when i first got in there and it was zero in in september to you know two and a half million dollars like a couple of weeks so i think it's tallying around two million dollars right now of a total market cap 
just of one card out of the 750. So the other 749 have separate market caps, but this other one is being traded. People are buying it. I mean, I'm witnessing people spend like a Bitcoin and a half on one card that you don't physically hold. And it's really a, an interesting thing. Um, it, it also is interesting because recently <laughs> rare, the Rare Pepe got involved in the Bitcoin uh uncensored podcast and uh, you know they're they're scam busters and they one of the guys thinks that Pebby cash is a scam the other guy collected a bunch of it dumped it and it broke right as of now don't know but it seems like it's broken up the podcast which is kind of a scapegoat but uh we won't get into that <laughs> anyway we there was more discussion on it and it, it is not a scam all right it, it's not a security either that's why it's not a scam it's just a collectible. If you want to buy it, you buy it. If you don't, you don't. It's a very fascinating thing for artists to get involved. I think there's going to be a lot more art and trading card stuff like this on the web. And these cards can be put into different games and stuff. Like there's games, look up Augmenters and um, Spells of Genesis and Rare Pepe Party and a bunch of different games that people are uh, using this for so uh, it, it's interesting to me and uh you know if you're an artist check it out you can uh make some money on the blockchain yeah there's lots of different levels to something like this because the the virtual asset itself it's one thing we're gonna try to emphasize in the next couple of shows is dealing with the learning about finance you know yeah. how do you how does how do you understand how this is operating because bitcoin of course has different features people like it for different reasons yeah. and people like blockchain for different reasons there's a there is an emotional attachment to some of these things yeah. so where are you uh and you want to find where do you fit you know you want to be comfortable with what it is that you're with what you're using but the trading card seems to be a really fascinating way to at least kind of get engaged with some element of the emotional the game itself you know, getting involved with that might be a good introduction. Yeah, it's cool because you can, like, if you look up the Takara app on your phone, too, you download that, you can drop these tokens on Takara, like a geocaching thing. And that's like a basic version. The guy, Mandel Duck, over the people over at Mandel Duck actually have made this uh, augmented reality type thing with this, which is crazy. Um, you know, there's a lot of co cool stuff going on with it, but uh, we'll get into some more of that later. But yeah, that's uh, my news of the week. Um, I guess that kind of uh, wraps it up for us. It was a good interview with Adam. Uh, went a little longer, but I'm glad he gave a lot of good information. Yep, I think it, I think it went well. Like I said, we're gonna provide links to what we've talked about. I think maybe we should start something like a glossary so people can understand. Yeah, there's a lot to. There's lots of concepts, and um, perhaps that's another way to learn is is putting up some sort of glossary of terms so people know yeah you know nobody needs to be confused about this and if you are in the dc area like we mentioned earlier uh we are going to have a, a meetup uh we'll have that announcement on our uh are we gonna have it on the website or the on the notes of this podcast we'll probably both places I, yeah. yeah so you can you'll be able to check the website which is of uh, funktownsteam.com funktownsteam.com until next time, uh, you can find me pretty much all over social media at Skrilla Ventura. And actually, I I have a DJ name. <laughs> Squizzy. Ask Squizzy on Twitter. <laughs> uh,